0: Edward Tarr, known widely in his community as Black Ned, became a blacksmith while enslaved in Pennsylvania. After purchasing his freedom, Tarr and his white wife moved to Timber Ridge in modern Rockbridge County, where his forge on the Great Wagon Road became a well-known landmark. When he bought a 270-acre farm on Mill Creek in 1754, Tarr became the first black landowner west of the Blue Ridge Mountains. The son of Tar's last master attempted to re-enslave him, but with the help of his neighbors, Tar preserved his independence. Exceptional free persons of color, such as Edward Tarr, can be found in every region and in every period during the history of slavery. As Edward Tarr's story illustrates, there were more than isolated individuals. Th- these were more than isolated individuals. By the coming of the American Revolution, they constituted a self-aware, cohesive set of lobbyists capable of wielding the rhetoric of political liberty to roll back the encroachment of racist laws. Ironically, however, the revolution undercut many of the legal gains made by free persons of color in the 1760s. Turk McCluskey received his BA in history from the University of Texas at Austin. After serving as an active duty infantry officer in the U.S. Marine Corps, he earned a doctorate in history from the College of William and Mary in 1990. His research and publications focus on the 18th century American frontier. Most recently, he has been engaged in a numerical and social analysis of civil litigation in colonial Virginia. Professor McCleskey joined the Virginia Military Institute faculty in 1994, and teaches history on the southern edge of Black Ned's Timber Ridge neighborhood. <coughs> Excuse me. His teaching and service at the Institute have been recognized with the VMI Foundation's Award for Distinguished Teaching, the Faculty Mentor Award, and the VMI Achievement Medal. His first peer-received peer-reviewed essay, essay was published in 1990, I'm happy to say, in our own Virginia Magazine, entitled Rich Land, Poor Prospects, Real Estate and the Formation of a Social Elite in Augusta County, Virginia, 1738 to 1770. He is the author and will be his topic today of The Road to Black Ned's Forge, a story of race, sex, and trade on the colonial American frontier. So please join me in a warm, especially today, a warm VHS welcome to Turk McCleskey.
1: Thank you for coming out today. This is uh, this is not exactly uh, the best weather to come uh, around to uh, uh, any kind of outdoor event. Uh, I'm especially delighted to see a couple of graduate school classmates in here. Uh, Tom Wren uh, is uh, now a retired uh, professor emeritus from the University of Richmond, and uh, John Kosky uh, of the Museum of the Confederacy. And uh, it's seeing them makes me think about uh, the other construction, dust, noise, uh, that, you, that attended the change of this place. When we were in graduate school what, and we were all working here, what we saw was the Battle Abbey core of this place. And what you have done today and what the support of members of the society have done over the years is transform this place. This is, this is extraordinary. And in a way, it feels sort of like time travel almost that I've, I'm now in the future. and I'd, Because, of course, none of us, Tom, have aged a bit since the, the day that we were in graduate school. Um, I want to thank you, Paul, for that very generous uh, introduction and the welcome here today and to Graham Dozier also for, uh, for uh, recruiting me for this uh, presentation. And it's a fantastic opportunity to to talk about some material that first became obvious in, among other places, the collections of the uh, Virginia Historical Society. Um, It's a great chance to talk about 18th century Virginia, or at least one of them. And that, in fact, is sort of a theme for the day, is that there's many colonial Virginias. And this, I believe, Uh, you know uh, intuitively that there's an urban version that's uh, completely manifested or most completely manifested right down the road from us in Colonial Williamsburg. But, you know, we get glimpses of it even here in Richmond with local names, uh, uh, but uh, especially in places like Alexandria uh, where we see the old street names, the old lot lines from the colonial era towns. Fredericksburg, Yorktown, these are all n- landmarks of colonial Virginia. But there's a pl- also a genteel planter version and close by here that's observable at places like Tuckahoe um, and then right on up the road uh, at uh, Monticello or at uh, Mount Vernon. There's a religious version that we of, of colonial Virginia and we can observe that in places Uh, like some of the landmarks familiar to you here in eastern Virginia uh, to include Christ Church uh, Alexandria uh, where Washington worshipped or uh, the Bruton Parish Church in uh, Williamsburg. There are many uh, Anglican parish churches that have survived across the countryside too. So we get these other Virginias that are religious in nature plus a few dissenting meeting houses uh, scattered out uh, Presbyterians and Baptists. Uh, Let's also don't forget the political and um, uh, economic version of colonial Virginia and in some ways the most um, familiar sites for this include things like the reconstructed colonial capital down in in Williamsburg, the sort of high version of colonial governance that we see expressed in places like the governor's palace uh, and so on. The surviving county courthouses uh, remind us, too, of that. This Virginia, uh, though, and and we were having a little technical difficulty, so we're a little blurry. That's not you, OK? <laughs> Just to reassure. Um, if you're a, a student, though, of colonial Virginia in its uh, sort of final quarter century, then you know that, that um, the Virginians of that era had a quite the expansive view of their, uh, of their domain. And um, this, of course, should not surprise any of us that Virginians should have an expansive view of their importance. And we'll notice that here the, uh, the view runs through the blur in the top left corner of the map, which is Lake Erie. And this map, of course, is done by Thomas Jefferson's father, uh, Peter Jefferson and Joshua Fry. Uh, one of the speculators involved in western land development, so they really have the big picture. And What's interesting is that this sort of subcontinental view of Virginia, the landmarks of that, unlike the landmarks of the other colonial Virginias that I've mentioned already, these landmarks, for the most part, are more terrain features than they are constructed features. But even in the West, we get some construction. If you go to Winchester, Virginia, uh, for example, uh, we still can see there George Washington's office. The, the streets and the lot lines, the block lines in Winchester are the, are the boundaries of that city's lots in that day. If you go still farther, and you actually, this tells us about the Virginia vision, you go into what today is Pennsylvania, uh, you get to this scruffy little reconstruction the Park Service has put together for Fort Necessity, George Washington's uh, desperate outpost uh, constructed right at the start of the, of the Seven Years' War. You go beyond that and you get to yet another vi- vision of Virginia that um, you can see in Pittsburgh, standing overlooking the city from the top of one of those uh, funicular railroad uh, cars they, You can look down and you can see the footprint of Fort Duquesne with the whole Pittsburgh skyline behind it. And you get this glimpse right there embedded in the heart of one of the most industrial cities in America. Here's that vision of Virginia. That's Virginia we're looking at down there. In the West, though, these terrain features matter more, not the architectural constructions. And in some ways, we feel a whole lot more connected to that Virginia because of the grandeur of that that west. In the towns of the day, in uh, Winchester and Stanton, uh, those are surrounded by mountains. It's rough terrain out there. On a day like today, even crossing a creek in that region could become uh, a life-threatening activity. Intriguingly, as we look out there in that Western landscape, we see though not just glimpses of the visions of people like Thomas Jefferson's father and George Washington and other elite members of Colonial Virginia society, but we also glimpse a landscape that was shared by thousands of people um, that Washington would have seen or Jefferson would have seen had they been out there. As we look back from a modern perspective, it's really hard to interpret that because their version of colonial Virginia turns out to be a very complicated place. And notably, Washington's Virginia was um, racially complex. Not all uh, whites were free and not all blacks were slaves. Two centuries after the fact, uh, the um, For example, Douglas Southall Freeman's um, 1948 biography of George Washington mentioned an interracial marriage that in Freeman's Virginia in 1948 would have been illegal, and some of you remember that that time. Moravian missionaries in 1753, Freeman wrote, uh, found in the upper valley a negro smith who had as his wife a Scotch woman from Pennsylvania. Freeman clearly was intrigued by this, and in a way, he's pointing to something that I think we we can easily miss the significance of if we're not careful. He's saying, look, this is really different. He's writing late in the era of Jim Crow but implicitly he's recognizing that Washington's Virginia is maybe more complicated than his own. But of course, that's not how colonial Virginia was presented in our lifetimes, in the major public history sites, um, in the Eastern landmarks, in the second half of the 20th century. Many of you remember a time when few, if any, black faces appeared in any colonial Virginia historical site. At Monticello, for example, when I first went there, an anonymous servant received a cameo reference in the dining room part of the tour, and that was it, which of course is a, a quite the far cry from today when just a few weeks ago uh, I heard a guide in Thomas Jefferson's bedroom discussing Sally Hemings at In Detail. They have transformed their interpretation of African-American life at Monticello. This is very unlike that and unlike my first visit to Mount Vernon, uh, when again, uh, there was simply uh, the barest allusions to uh, an, even to an enslaved population. And certainly there's no notion that uh, in those, in that earlier time that there might have been also a substantial, black population. That means that today we're looking at landmarks of colonial slavery that are being interpreted in a modern scholarly way that give us a sense of landscapes for enslaved peoples and these sites, and I think Virginia uh, in general is leading the way in this, these sites are tremendously important for the insights they give about African American uh, experiences in that time. But the African American landscape of colonial Virginia includes more than the landscape of slavery. There are also Virginia landmarks for free blacks, like the road to Black Ned's Forge. Today we call that road by its 20th century name, which is um, Highway 11. Uh, you may also have met it in the 19th century. Those of you who are interested in the Civil War as the Valley Pike that, uh, of course, that Stonewall Jackson used to such a devastating effect. You may know it in the 18th century by its name as the Great Wagon Road or before European settlement or right at them in the first few years of European settlement as the Indian Road uh, the way that it's, it's shown here. Um, the Indian Road, in this case, by the a Treaty of Lancaster. Freeman's footnote about this anonymous free black man thus offers a place to start asking the question, what does that free black landscape look like in colonial Virginia? And being historians, um, we of course are all about the sources and so we wanna know, well, where did Freeman get it? And if you follow him back, and again, this is our blurry uh, projector, not your blurry vision, Um, We find that his footnote leads us to an early 20th century translation from German to English of a travel account maintained by Moravian ministers. Um, In October of 1753, these ministers made their way uh, from Pennsylvania to modern day, the site of modern day Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And their route uh, traversed the uh, Valley of Virginia came up the valley on on this great wagon road, a road that led them west of the Blue Ridge as what appeared to them to be the easiest route. And about five miles north of modern day Lexington, they encountered the free black blacksmith that uh, uh, Freeman uh, described. And they asked him to shoe one of their horses. The blacksmith really impressed these Moravians because uh, they described him first of all as a free man and they wrote more about him than any other individual they described in their 500 mile journey. Now that's significant uh, in a lot of ways and one of them is that this this journey, the diaries uh, representations journey is intended to be a journal for the use of future immigrants. So it's like a travel guide, it's a way to describe not just here's what happened to us, but here's what you can expect, you future travelers immigrating uh, to North Carolina from Pennsylvania. They appreciated this blacksmith in part because he was a man of faith. He and his wife told the ministers that they uh, had heard Moravians preach in Pennsylvania so suddenly, we have a really different notion uh, of this man. He's not just there in the moment on the Virginia frontier, but he came there from Pennsylvania. And according to the Moravian ministers, I'm quoting them, they loved people who spoke of the Savior. Indeed, the couple owned a book of sermons by uh, Count Zinzendorf, this uh, essential patron of the 18th century Moravian church. So the ministers really appreciate this man on many levels. Part of it is his hospitality, part of it is his skill as a farrier. um, And the next morning, they really appreciated the wife because she baked bread for the ministers, uh, which would have been a great treat for the travelers. I mean, you just, these these are people who are pushing hard. They're traveling 30 miles a day, uh, which is, I, I know, is a hard pace to maintain, but they're doing it. And to have that fresh bread for them would have been a tremendous treat. But beyond their faith and kindness, this couple of course is distinctive in other ways. And the thing that really jumps out at us is what jumped out at Freeman, it's interracial. That's not what we think ought to happen. But moreover, they point out this free black man spoke German well. That's their characterization. He understood German well. So we've we've got this enigmatic figure. Uh, The ministers take their leave from them. They depart the next morning. They cross the Maury River within a couple of miles. That's the river very close by Lexington today. They left us this incredible record. But of course, we historians have insatiable appetites, and we are never... We never get all we want. And um, indeed, there's some really frustrating aspects of this Moravian account for all of its richness. And there are some things we could not know other ways. For all of its richness, they did not even name the blacksmith. <laughs> what were they thinking? You know? <laughs> I don't remember when I realized that the Moravians' anonymous uh, blacksmith was a man who appeared in other Augusta County records as Edward Tarr. And I don't remember when I realized that Edward Tarr was the man who appeared in still other Augusta County records as someone named Black Ned. But sometime before I finished my dissertation, which Tom knows took way longer than it should have done, sometime back in the 1980s, it just, I just sort of said, oh, oh yeah, that's that guy, and moved on. And the article that that, uh, Paul very kindly referred to in in the introduction mentions Edward Tarr in it as an example, because it's about real estate. It's an example of a free black owning real estate on the Virginia frontier. But even so, even as of that, you know, completing that dissertation, at least, I had no premonition that tar was about to drag me down the very long road to Black Ned's Forge. Gradually, however, he began to sort of insist that I pay attention to him. And and, um, in in this uh, uh, curiosity, this moment of curiosity, I followed him back into Pennsylvania. And we can glimpse him there in 1732 um, on the banks of the Schuylkill River at the age of about 21, Enslaved. He labored as a hammerman in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania uh, in the forges there until about 1748. Now, to be a hammerman in one of these ironworks is to be in one of the most dangerous jobs that you could have in colonial America. Uh, the ironworks themselves are really unusual in an 18th century context. They're one of the very few. Uh, around-the-clock activities that, beyond sailing, that that people engaged in in those days. But when you start an iron furnace going, you have to keep it going 24 hours a day. So you have shift work, and the work itself is tremendously dangerous. The furnaces you may have visited uh, some of these. The National Park Service maintains one of these sites in Pennsylvania. There are these massive stone chimneys. We had them here in Virginia too. And at the top of the chimneys, there's a ramp that allows you to dump these cartloads of, of uh, uh, charcoal, alternating layers of charcoal and limestone and iron ore in there, and you burn it from the bottom, and gradually it gets hot enough to melt that iron ore. You tap it at the bottom every now and then, and the liquid iron runs out into channels, creating pig iron. The hammermen, like Edward Tarr, then took these iron pigs and they would take a couple of them, so figure something that weighs between 150 and 200 pounds, melt those bars together, and then hold this red-hot lump of iron. Two men would hold it with big, massive tongs on an anvil underneath a water-powered trip hammer. And the head of that hammer, that trip hammer, would be iron and would weigh something on the neighborhood of 200 more pounds. And so gra- very gradually the water wheel would raise it up and then all of a sudden the cog trips and the thing falls hard and noisily and splatteringly on that big red-hot chunk of iron. You want to conceive this iron as a, um, a sponge with the iron itself being the sponge and the juice in it that spatters out instead of being a liquid like water, is a molten heat form of glass. It's the mineral waste that's in the iron. So here are two men doing this, one of them the slave, Edward Tarr, and for a period of time, one of them, one of his masters, a man named John Hansen, a refiner, a forgeman. Now that's a really different notion of work. I uh, showed that cartouche image from the Fry Jefferson map. And had it been focused, you'd have seen a slave working on a hogshead of tobacco with a little hammer. But this is a big hammer. And the relationship between master and slave over that one lump of red hot iron is not the same relationship as in a tobacco field. In that instance, that slave had the opportunity to do almost anything that could endanger the life of his master and make it look like an accident. So their whole relationship is different. And one of the toughest challenges of this as I work through it is dealing with the fact that these relationships between Edward Tarr and his master amounted to um, kind of virtual shackles, that the two are, are shackled together. And so it became impossible to talk about the slave without also talking about the masters, uh, as I do in a couple of chapters of the book. And gradually, and I wanna emphasize, this is very, very, very gradually, I began to get a sense of tar occupying a physical landscape in Pennsylvania as well. This, uh, unfortunately, blurry slide shows a, um, in white, uh, Joseph shoots his last master's household it's on the road from Lancaster that forded the Schuylkill River right at the house and then followed this, the road follows uh, the terrain all the way into Philadelphia proper, shown down in the lower right-hand corner of this, of this illustration. So Thomas Shute, his last master, and, and, uh, and Tar's story are really inextricable. Clearly, those ironworks amounted to a kind of school. There's an education available there if you're willing to learn, and Ned appears to have been. When Thomas Shute died in 1748, uh, Ned, as he was then known, seized the life-changing opportunity that Shute's will provided. Shute's will disposed of six slaves. Now, again, for Virginia, that does not sound like anything particularly noteworthy a yeoman in Virginia might very well have six slaves but you think about the uh, things like uh, Mulberry Row at Monticello as as an extreme case or for that matter uh, the Washington Holdings at Mount Vernon and you realize okay we're we're talking about something that's on a completely different scale. But six slaves in Philadelphia in this era that's actually quite a lot uh, we know from uh, the historian Gary Nash and Um, One of these slaves, a female, was assigned to an heir, so that would look familiar to anybody from colonial Virginia. Um, Another, an elderly man, was to be cared for by another heir, and we see that, too, occasionally. A third was to be sold for, I'm quoting, the best price that can be got, and that mercenary attitude about this um, part of the estate is, again, familiar to us, and so all that looks normal. And then three, including Ned, were given the opportunity to buy their own freedom on a six-year installment plan. Ned, as it turns out, made his payment in half that time. At the age of 37, he was a free man. Now, at first glance, his next move appears counterintuitive. But again, this is part of the landscape of free blacks. At the age of 37, he moved to Virginia. When we look backwards on this from the 21st century, we, we are forced to look through the lens of the 19th century to see the event. And we think we understand the condition of American race relations in the antebellum world very well. But that's not Edward Tarr's world. Instead, what we've got is that for for Ned to move to Virginia is not any different than moving anywhere else. Slavery until the American Revolution was legal in every colony, uh, so it's important to recognize that there's not a north and south, there's not a free and slave uh, divide here, it's just different places that have different versions of slavery and different versions of free African-American landmarks. Now I argue in the book that Ned moved to Virginia for love. Uh, Remember the white wife that the Moravians described? Um, You you probably could guess readily that uh, such a marriage, the act of such a marriage, was illegal in colonial Virginia. Uh, It's illegal also in Pennsylvania. Indeed, it was a worse the punishment was worse in Pennsylvania for both parties to marry across the racial lines than in Virginia. But the the thing that's being punished is the act of marriage, not the condition of being married. So if you got married in Pennsylvania and then briskly immigrated to Virginia, you could not be prosecuted in Virginia for a crime you had not committed in this colony. How about that? <laughs> Pretty good. I told you he got an education in Pennsylvania. And there's something that's you know, right on the edge of law school there, right? <laughs> that's genius. That is real genius. The marriage may very well have been facilitated by a radical Presbyterian minister uh, who moved from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania uh, to the Virginia frontier at the same time. This is uh, the man, the Reverend Alexander Craighead. Uh, Some of you may know, he's one of the people who helped precipitate uh, the the crisis, the Presbyterian part of the crisis of the Great Awakening. Um, quite Quite the political radical of his day. Hello. There we go. Good. Um, uh, But in moving to Virginia, what what Ned did is join a neighborhood of white families forming up in in what today is the upper reaches of the James River. Remember, the Maury River at Lexington flows here to to the James. And this document, which can be seen very clearly in its... um, uh (laughs) at the uh, uh, Library of Virginia website. This is a um, map drawn in 1804 um, of what, uh, that that supported a lawsuit over land in this vast tract known as Borden's Land, a huge grant of uh, just a little short of 100,000 acres west of the Blue Ridge in the late 1730s. The litigation generated than this, this map, and the, and the map's an attempt to answer the question, who lived there first? And so uh, it's, it's drawn long after most, of, but not all, of the people in that region were dead, but some were still around. And so the map represents their memory of the first settlers, and we'll look at the detail of it. And um, what we see is that they remembered Edward Tar is being one of the first people to come to their neighborhood. Uh, so this this uh, inset shown in the little box, little blue box, and here's Edw Tar, and he's on the wagon road, which enters the map at the top left-hand corner at that arrow, and at the broad arrow down at the bottom, it exits the map, and it runs by diagonally by what today. And what in 1804 was the site of Lexington, Virginia. But of course, in Tar's day, there's no such thing there. But that's to, to Orient. So they remember him as being the original settler on that particular place. Now, in that location, it, in the, the location that goes, went then and still goes by the name of Timber Ridge, in 1753, the same summer, that the Moravians found him just a few weeks later. That summer of 1753, uh, Ned signed a pledge to uh, pay a new Presbyterian minister at Timber Ridge, and he also signed a call um, inviting that minister to serve as the uh, congregation's full-time pastor. The, the, um, The call is in the Presbyterian Historical Society in um, uh, Philadelphia, but the pledge to pay and the amounts is a uh, 19th-century transcript uh, that's uh, here in the uh, Virginia Historical Society. So it's an incredible document. This uh, that, that uh, this this commitment that uh, the, the different members of this congregation all sign up for. Um, so we've got Tar then, and everything looks like he's really, he's really doing a great job. Um, he's got a 270-acre farm. Uh, he's able to, um, to run this shop that even people as badly lost as the Moravians were could find. And um, he makes everything look easy. If many of you know, it's not an easy thing to be a Presbyterian or a minister or excuse me, a member of a Presbyterian congregation, and yet he's able to do that. He's able to persuade these people that yes, I belong here. I need to step right up and sign that document uh, with the rest of you. So this smithy becomes for uh, the road orders in Augusta County a landmark. It's a reference point that says you know, where they assign the duty for road maintenance, and, and one end of a road segment to be maintained by the community is the road, Edward Tarr's shop. Okay. So everybody knows he's there, everybody can see what the Moravians saw is that he's married to a white woman, and everybody's okay with it. He made it look so easy. Economic success, interracial marriage, full membership in this Presbyterian congregation. Acceptance acceptance by the white neighbors. This is a really different colonial Virginia, right? This is not something you can understand with a 19th century lens. And you look at it and you go, what could possibly go wrong? Another white woman. Contemporaries describe the second woman as Ned Tar's concubine That's a quote. It's a term we should take in its Old Testament uh, sense of a junior or subordinate wife. In other words, the first wife's still there. And now there's this second relationship. Around 1760, Tarr and both women moved to Stanton. And he set up a new smithy uh, on the outskirts of town. And that's where we find him the following year. And that's um, where we find them indeed when the book opens. I'm going to uh, share with you the first three paragraphs of that um, in, the, in the hope that you can it'll raise a few questions uh, that then I can answer or can at least start to answer uh, at the close of this uh, presentation. In the autumn of 1761, a hamlet surrounding Augusta County's courthouse, officially became Stanton, the westernmost town of colonial Virginia. By contemporary standards, it was a diminutive village in a vast frontier county, and its residents faced a long road to any substantial town. 150 miles to Virginia's capital in Williamsburg, 300 miles to Pennsylvania's capital in Philadelphia, over 400 miles to South Carolina's capital in Charleston. For Stanton resident Edward Tarr, however, Philadelphia and Charleston loomed claustrophobically close that fall. On 6 October, Edward Tarr and a North Carolina white man named Hugh Montgomery stood before two justices of the peace in Stanton. Montgomery complained that he had, I'm quoting, Purchased a Negro man named Edward Tar, from one Joseph Shute of Charleston, son of the late Thomas Shute. Again quoting, to whom the said Edward belonged, to, in the province of Pennsylvania. Tar denied Montgomery's claim, asserting instead that he had bought himself, from Thomas Shute's executor and grandson William Davis of Philadelphia. As the magistrates weighed Montgomery's complaint, they reviewed more than a set of documents. They also explicitly considered their firsthand knowledge of Tar's story. Tar, they noted, I'm quoting them, has resided in this county for ten years last past, and is a freeholder. The magistrates hesitated to enslave someone they had known for a decade as a free and economically independent man. The rest of Edward Tarr's story is in his book. Uh, I thank you for your attention. I, uh, I welcome your questions. Uh, we, we do have a microphone to help a little bit in the capturing of the sound here too. So, uh, uh, because this we are uh, being recorded, I think we want to do that if we can. So. Very interesting uh, prologue. Uh, <laughs> is there was there legal differences between a slave who was manumitted by his owner versus one who purchased his freedom? Were there any legal difference, and how were those two statuses documented? Uh, I I've got to stay on the mic. Sorry but the the question was about the difference in in, uh, status and difference in documentation between being manumitted uh, by a will and manumitted by the self-purchase. In the end, the condition is the same. The the records are rather different. um, In both cases, the important thing is to get the records into um, a Virginia court of record, which would be a county court. that creates a set of certifications then that can be used if the challenge is ever raised. Now, what I think is very interesting about these free blacks like Edward Tarr, who existed in every Virginia county. I've I've scrutinized Virginia county court records at mid-century for every Virginia county, everyone that's extant, and every one of those counties has free blacks in it that, that are visible in the court records. So the courts become the guarantors essentially, um, but, but what that really represents is that they are known people in their community. And so on a day-to-day basis, a man like Edward Tarr would have no challenge. There, there would be, nobody would say, you can't possibly be fr- a free man. So the, the end result, whether it's manumission or uh, the self-purchase, uh, would still be a, a condition that relied in part on your neighbors and then ultimately on the court's willingness to enforce a contract. So, sir. Oh, I can't! I cannot have stunned everybody into silence. <laughs> there's, there's several. There we go. Did Tar ever serve in any of the Virginia militias? The question, uh, did Tar ever serve in the Virginia militias, is um, I can kind of answer, but not hundred percent sure. He doesn't show up in any of the surviving rosters, and he is one of the people, one of the many, one of the thousands of people who fled Augusta County during the Seven Years' War, so we know that. He went back to Pennsylvania for a time uh, during the, the worst days of the Seven Years' War. However, again, here in the Historical Society, there are, there are rosters uh, from the frontier militia for this region in that Seven Years War period. And they're free black men that are serving in the militia. And this is at a time when the white guys are deserting in droves, but the free black guys keep showing up. And then they, 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 are, they are very reliable defenders of this, of this frontier region. Tarj is not the only free black man out here. He's the only free black landowner. And indeed the first in Virginia, west of the Blue Ridge. But there are other free black men out there who enlist in the, in the army, in the, in the militia, and who serve during the crisis, yes.
0: Thank you very much. It was it a was really interesting presentation. Okay. Uh, something, I, I don't know if this is really a question or it's something that just occurred to me. It, it seems as though um, slavery must have been an inherited condition, is that true? If so, if you were a slave, then your your children were slaves, unless something ha- unless you did something or or someone else did something to change that. But if you were free, were your uh, were your descendants
1: free automatically? Is that? Well, the 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 law said that the condition uh, of a child followed the condition of the mother. So if the mother is enslaved, then um, it doesn't matter about the condition of the father. Yeah. Um, the yeah. I'll, I'll I'll stop with that. Yeah. So that's that's what's going to distinguish. Yes.
0: Being a free man and a property holder, I'm assuming he had the right to vote and could also hold office?
1: Well, that's an interesting problem. Um, because they call him a freeholder and you know a freeholder means not just you own land, but it means you're a political person. And that that means both the ability to vote as you said and the ability to o- hold office as you said. And and that's that's an important thing to remember about the franchise just just because you can vote doesn't necessarily mean you can hold office now unfortunately, there are no voting registers that survived from Augusta County for this period um, there there are in perfect I would say impeccable records of the office holding and so tar never held any office, but that's not terribly surprising either. there are lots of white men who didn't hold office, so we wouldn't want to make any kind of judgment about that does that mean he was being excluded but the but the intriguing thing is the term the magistrates use to describe him they call him a freeholder which which implies something really intriguing about his uh, his status doesn't it yeah. Yeah. Yes, sir uh, did anybody come from Africa directly any, any blacks um, Yes sir they did um, this is this we know from uh, work by my colleagues. Uh, 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 Phil Morgan and Mick Nichols, who did a, a, um, a very careful screening of the county court records. And what they found is that in the, in the colonial records during the period of the slave trade, we'll see these registries of children. And these registries uh, are, are, the purpose of them is you bring a child into court and you, you, everybody agrees in the community on their age. So that that means in turn, you know when to start taxing that child. Um, and and those children whose ages are being certified, because they're not born here, there's no community knowledge of it. So what Morgan and Nichols interpreted is that that tells us these guys are, are brought here. And where they were able to go back and link those um, those children to the records, the surviving records of the slave trade, they can in fact find that the the surges in the importations we see in slave imports match the the surges in the county courts. And uh, I see that in Augusta County very clearly. Uh, The the pattern of those slave child registrations in Augusta County when they begin uh, in the 1760s, really, uh, when they take off, that that matches the, it it flows with the Virginia seasonal uh, changes in the slave trade. So, yes, they are coming directly from Africa, mostly as children. Most of the adults are veterans of slavery from somewhere else. I should have said, uh, are they free, free people
0: that came
1: from Africa? That would be very unusual. Um, I know of no case like that. Yeah,
0: yeah I was wondering, did Mr. Tar have any children? And uh, did they inherit his land?
1: <laughs> I want to know that. I want to know that too. <laughs> I can't find them. I, you know, I looked everywhere. I, I looked at every piece of paper they got in this building. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, and it's a hard thing to have to admit. But here's what I mean: they may not have had children. I mean, not everybody does, right? But if they did, it's also possible. And this is this is an insight I owe to. Uh, my colleague and, and friend, the late John Hemphill, who, who one day just said, oh, they might have passed, meaning if they had children, you know, the, this black man and Scottish wife, then they may have moved somewhere else and then represented themselves as being white. And so they, they uh, did exactly what their father did, which is to take their racial identity and kind of stand it on its head and say, well, yeah, you're right, here I am. What do you want to do about it? here we go. And then they just made themselves into something else. So that's possible. And what my great hope is that somebody here, maybe even in this audience today, will go, oh yeah, we got some old papers. Let me go back and look. (laughs) (laughs) Give them to the Virginia Historical Society. (laughs) This map's driving me nuts. I'm trying to figure out where this is. Okay. Uh, This is is an aerial photograph that shows uh, exit 195 on uh, US-8164. And it's where uh, Highway 11 runs underneath uh, the the interstate. It's the last exchange that's north of the cutoff where 64 takes off to the west. And uh, that's why we have no archaeology on this place. You know, a blacksmith forge is a really messy place and archaeologists can can spot them right away. I mean, you and I mean amateurs, guys like me can tell, oh yeah, this is a forge. You know, because the, it's a very distinctive looking footprint. Um, but this was this site was, you know, bladed in the 19, late 1950s when they started working on the interstate preparation uh, so nah, there's it, it's a landmark. <laughs> you know, it's a landmark of the free black Colonial landscape, but its 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 big landmark just says Exit 195. Yep.
0: Um, I was also curious about the property. That's a big, expensive piece of real estate. Have you looked at um, property exchanges, sales, and how the history of that property has evolved?
1: Yes, sir. I did. That's the short answer. <laughs> 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 The, um, the the book discusses how um, how Tar relinquished the property. The the site is uh, was in the nineteenth century. Like this region in the valley in general, was uh, heavily industrialized in a way that, that seems really weird to us now because we're looking back on it. But um, that's a site that that has today the ruins of a nineteenth century what was called a merchant mill, a commercial mill big enough to produce for commercial volumes of flour uh, as part of the, the wheat industry uh, in this region. Um, so, so the site itself has uh, a kind of distinctive history as a milling site that began with the very next owner after Tar. yeah. If, it, if it's not in the book, would you tell us how the heck they found him out there in that wilderness? OK, see, that's the, that, it's not a wilderness. That's how. I mean, see, here's the problem with the Moravian diary. That's what we know, right? I mean, that's what Freeman was looking at. And he goes, oh, yeah, it's way out in the wilderness. That's what everybody on this side of the Blue Ridge thinks, is we're all a bunch of, you know, hillbillies living out there. I'm sorry. It's not like that. And it wasn't like that in colonial America. What you had out there was a rural community that is no different in its configuration from the rural communities from here to the coast or from here out to the Blue Ridge Mountains. And so what what the Moravians are doing is they're following the Great Wagon Road, which is hard to miss because they they only rarely ask for directions, mention that they ask for directions. So they get on the road, they follow the road, they go along. It's not always an easy road, but that's mostly their fault for what they've got in the wagon. So, so they go along from place to place, kind of rattling their way south, and they feel embattled because these, these Scotch-Irish people with Mac names, you know, uh, like me, uh, like my ancestors, actually, are menacing to them. They're scared of the Presbyterians. <laughs> I mean, read the records of these Moravian churches in, in Pennsylvania. They're having riots in the meeting houses. I mean, what a great reason to go to church! You might go and you might really feel uplifted, and you might go and get to see you know a boxing match. I mean, they're 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 throwing mud at ministers, and they're you know they're they're breaking the windows out and just smashing things in these meeting houses. So they're scared of these guys. When they on the way down here, they don't they, they to get around one of the one of the um, uh, outposts of the Scotch Irish in Pennsylvania, they keep going until two in the morning to get around the the uh, this this one particular Scotch Irish village where they're known to be these you know people like you know like the McCleskies. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um, so they they're not lost. They're not and it's not a wilderness. It just looks that way if you're from out of town. <laughs> Some days this job is just too much fun, you know, really. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. Uh, did the TAR household ever employ, uh, have any, um, employees of any type? That's, a, that's another great uh, question. Unfortunately, there's no systematic record of things like indentured servitude. You, you, you may have a, a, a contract registered in court, but you're not required to. So there's no documentation like that. However, there are signs that Tar's house was very much a center of a certain kind of social life. At one stage, for example, the court takes somebody who's just described as a child, a boy, um, from Edward Tarr's custody and binds him out. But the name is is really a name that's just not from here either. So, so in some way, this one, uh, Child of unknown age ends up being at Tar's house. And for all I can tell, Tar may well have come to the court and said, Hey, what do I do with this baby? You know. But but there's no record of, of either white or black labor uh, that he's employing. Now, when you think about the the work that's involved in being a blacksmith, um, there's quite a lot of that work, among other things, you have to make charcoal to, to make the fuel. So Pretty, pretty. I think the most likely explanation is that the the things that he needed um, were not so much manufactured for him by his workers, but they're things that, as a blacksmith, he could very easily um, exchange his labor for with his neighbors. Um, in an economy that's essentially an iron age economy, uh, they need him just as badly as he needs them.